the task old England is out to perform with Russia and France to assist. And some help now and then from the brave Belgian men. And it's this to defeat the male of fish. It's a terrible task and we had to combine. But together we'll wind up the one. Well, hello, and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. So in this episode, we'll be putting an end to our look at Barbara Tuckman, at least for now, unless uh, it probably will be, uh, we probably won't be coming back to her unless Library of America publishes another collection of her writings. I haven't seen any being advertised or, or announced upcoming, so... Uh, for the foreseeable future, this will be all we'll be doing with with Barbara Tuckman, and specifically, we'll be finishing up the the Proud Tower in the, uh, in this episode. So, if you just join us, joining us, you might want to go back to these last three episodes to get an idea of what the Proud Tower is as a book, as a as a work of of, of history. What she's trying to do is actually a collection of essays that she, she kind of grafted together into a, a book attempting to explore the, the status of the world prior to, to 1914 and the decades before 1914. Um, so anyways, we're going to look at chapter 7 and 8 today. Um, these two chapters sort of go together. Uh, the first of these, chapter 7, is called The Transfer of Power, England, 1902 to 1911. And this chapter focuses on the rise of the Labour Party. Uh, the victory of the liberals uh, after the death of Lord Salisbury, uh, who was actually a, the major topic of chapter one. This, this chapter actually does the more than any other connect two chapters together because really, um, you know, everything else is sort of a tour of Europe and looking at different individuals and topics in other parts of Europe and in the United States. But this chapter really got to serve as a direct sequel to chapter one, looking at this political shift towards democracy, right? And really kind of the entrenchment of, of the democratic uh, worldview. This doesn't mean, of course, that in England anyways, this, of course, this doesn't mean that the, the conservative party never comes back uh, and never takes power again, but it will have to take power uh, with, with a new consciousness of its class. It can't be the old aristocratic class described in chapter one. It can't be the class of Lord Salisbury. So anyways, that's what chapter seven does. And then chapter eight is about the socialists. It's called the death of uh, Jouar, who's one of the socialist leaders. Um, but this, this kind of like chapter two, these kind of parallel chapter one and two, seven and eight, I mean, kind of, kind of do parallel chapters one and two, because ch chapter two looked at the anarchists and it did it internationally. Um, chapter eight looks at the socialists internationally as well and looks at different socialist movements and currents and debates among the socialists in different parts of Europe. But I, I think it's a nice introduction to this topic. Um, if you want a, like a quick introduction into like what the German socialists versus the American socialists we're dealing with, that's a, actually it's not a bad introduction to that. Um, so anyways, what's, let's, let's go into a little bit more detail. So in chapter seven, transfer of power um, th there's kind of two stories. There's the overall kind of rise of the Labour Party, right, which was still kind of a minority party um, before the f First World War, but it, it it was kind of building within the Liberal Party, right. And of course, after 
you know, in the context of the Great Depression, that's going to break up. You're going to have the conservatives and the labor. I'm not sure the exact date that happens, but it's, it's kind of a, there's kind of a party shift there. But you see the roots of it happening. So that's one story. But also the, the main character here, if there is a main character, is actually a conservative uh, Balfour, right? Who was mentioned and talked about in chapter one of the book. But he remained, excuse me, he sort of stayed on as the leader of the conservative party through much of this period. And so his final like retirement and resignation at the end of, of the chapter kind of puts an end to an era. Um, so I kind of like what this chapter does in, especially how it builds off of what chapter one was doing. And it kind of does form a nice sequel. I wish you would have done this more in this, in this book, actually kind of, you know, connecting the threads there are because that's i guess the biggest problem in this book is the individual threads are not always connected very clearly or really well there's not really an introduction or a conclusion that makes an attempt to kind of provide a grand narrative and as i said in a previous episode she even says in the like the preface to the book that you know i could have picked eight other entirely different stories and it you know, and wrote this book. And then I could have picked a whole nother eight stories and, and not had any overlap. Well, that randomness hurts the book, I think, because you can tell she's not really trying to to construct a narrative, an interpretation, right, which is something historians tend to do. Um, and she doesn't. She's, she's kind of on the side of narrative history, and, and that's good. That has its value, and I think it's interesting. But, um, you know, without that analytical side, you know, it's it's hard. It's easy. I guess it's easy to see why maybe many professional historians don't, you know, center their thoughts about her works. You know, they, they tend to think about other more analytical type of historians. And and you need both, of course. I, I think both both are sort of necessary. And this certainly has its place. But it does, you know, it's not always clear what she's trying to do. Uh, but here it is. Here you do see a, a story, uh, you know, of British politics going from here to here. Right. It, kind of that change over time, that core thing you, you expect to see in historical narratives. Um, so that's that's the thing that makes this, this chapter fairly strong. Now, another thing she does here is get into some of the ideology and the politics and the political debates and the, and the social context of the rise of of well, the, the, the decline of the conservative party. It's not truly the rise of the, of the Labour Party yet, but you see it's beginning. And the weakening of the House of Lords, right? So this transfer of power is really a, a political transfer of power to, to democracy. Now she does talk about how once late, uh, the liberals were in power uh, in the early 20th century, they ran into this problem of, of not really having the support of the Labour because the Labour Party wanted a much broader, more aggressive uh, social agenda. And the liberals, you know, didn't I mean that's it's in their name right we, we, we still the classical liberals right um, and that's that was their philosophy and it they had this they, they had the support of the labor against the conservatives but they, they had difficulty actually actually creating policy and agreeing on those things so there's a little bit of that factionalism and this is I'm just going to come up in the, the socialist as well um, the socialist chapter and I think that might be a theme she's sort of getting at is the, the these countries are, are so factionalized in many cases that when the war came it became a something that kind of unified all these things but there's no force that could challenge uh the agenda of the war right because of all the the factionalization in in these different countries 
And I guess another thing she really focuses on in this chapter is kind of the contradiction of, of the Liberal Party at the time, that laissez-faire capitalism just won't simply won't work. Like one of the ironies, I guess, that she points out here is you had suffragists who were going on hunger strikes, uh, women who wanted the right to vote, right? And liberals tended to support expanded franchise. That was part of this this liberal agenda of the, the, the liberal agenda of, of the 19th century uh, was expanding the franchise, right? Um, but you had these women protesters who were demanding the franchise for them and they were going on hunger strikes and it was the liberals who started force feeding them, right? And they had to come down fairly hard on them. And just more broadly, though, the philosophy of, of laissez-faire capitalism um, was a failure. Quote, it had produced the evils of sweated labor, unemployment, and destitution with liberalism, unready for the wholehearted state intervention of the Fabian dream could not cope with. In three years of office, the liberal government, after coming to power in a new century with a new mandate and party, the greatest mandate in party history, had not been able to give shape to the great promise of 1906. By 1910, the number of men involved in strikes was the highest of any year since 1893. So basically, this was a... a, a a 19th century philosophy trying to survive in the 20th century. And we know where the 20th century goes in Europe and, and pretty much across the world, right, with more state intervention, state regulation of capitalism, uh, reformism, revolution, right, state socialism, all these things that all look, make liberalism and look some, like make the debates of the 19th century look really quaint, right, when you, when you study, like, the controversy over the Corn Laws or something. That was, like, a great liberal... Uh, victory, right? The abolition of the corn laws uh, to have a free trading grain. You know, that you know, that looks so petty compared to what states are going to do in the in the, in the 20th century. I think the same thing happens in the United States, actually. With the progressive era kind of changing the, the nature of what the state can do and is willing to do. So anyways, all this is kind of a, a, a second layer of a transfer of power of even at the, at the point of its greatest victory, the Liberal Party was, was dying in the sense that it, it could not really adequately survive in that day and age. So that's some of what she gets into in this, this pretty good chapter. It's, it's a nice one. Um, and then we get to chapter eight, which is about the socialists. Uh, it's dated 1890 to 1914, so it covers the entire period that the Proud Tower covers. And like as chapter seven can be a sequel to chapter one, I think chapter eight can be a, a, a alongside uh, chapter two, right? Um, so socialists and anarchists, what's the big difference? Well, um, she doesn't really establish, she doesn't make that a, a core in, issue. She's not trying to do that. She, she, but, you know, she's not, I don't think there's like a page where she says, this is what the anarchists were, and this is what the socialists believe. This is how I differentiate the two. Obviously, the anarchists of the time tended to be socialist. And uh, in the sense that they, you know, they were anti-capitalist, I guess. I, I, I tend not to be too picky about using these terms like socialist or, or communist. I often just use them interchangeably, but maybe I shouldn't do that. But it's... You know, I think on a values level, they're 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 similar enough, and you know, now if I say state socialism, that they're making a, a clear distinction, I think. But anyways, um, the difference here is the socialists tend to be more overtly interested in politics and interested in the po in in 
in party politics. You know, they're much more involved in internal factional disputes over strategy and approach. They're active in strikes, and the anarchists were doing propaganda by the deed. So go back to to episode one about the Proud Tower. A few, a few episodes back where I talked about that chapter and my problems with it, because it comes up again here, is that anarchists were involved in these same kinds of issues. They weren't apolitical entirely. Um, they just didn't think party politics was the way to go at it. Um, but you can tell that Tuckman seems to have a little bit more sympathy, quite a lot more sympathy for the socialists described in this chapter than she did for the anarchist in chapter two. Maybe it's not because necessarily there's no violence. There's actually a lot of violence in this chapter too, but it's the violence of the strike. It's the violence of the organized working class resistance. And that's not also not something that's really talked about in chapter two. She gets into the misery of the working class life in chapter two, but she doesn't really get into the, the, the conflict of the, the brutal conflict in the coal fields, you know, or, you know, on the picket line. And she gets into that here. So that's a Bennett. That's a, that's a nice thing about this chapter. Now, since she's looking at the, the socialists as a international group, the same way she looked at the anarchists as an international group, she doesn't, you know, the other six chapters are all about uh, countries. Well, I guess the one chapter about the Hague is a little, also sort of international. But the, most of the chapters in this book deal with individual political cultures in different countries. But here we have a chapter that's sprawling all over uh, Western Europe, Central Europe, and and even North America, we get we get a pretty good picture of of the conflicts uh, among American socialists as well. Like you know, Gomper's hostility to the socialists and the conflict in the labor movement between the more socialist elements and the so-called business union elements, the AFL. See, you know, led by Gompers, people who wanted to to work with capital to improve wages and, and conditions, but not necessarily they didn't want to get into the politics of anti-capitalism, and weren't that interested in in forming a labor party. Right? Isn't that is that one of the reasons we, there's no socialism in America? No labor party has it's because the major labor movement. Uh, in the late 19th century, when all these other European countries were forming labor parties and, and creating a politically mobilized working class, you know, America didn't have, America had a, had a labor movement that largely was not interested in that. Even the radical socialists, I'm thinking here of like, well, I guess the anarchists like the IWW, weren't that interested directly in politics either. They were interested in direct action. Um, I guess you have the Knights of Labor. Maybe they're the closest America came to forming a labor party of sorts. You have the populists who got into politics. But, you know, you, get, you end up with that old question of does this stuff just kind of get gobbled up by one of the two major parties and, and die a slow death with, as a as a as an interest group within the major parties? Like what happened to the populists? Um, actually, the populists aren't mentioned in this book at all, unfortunately, because I think they're an interesting part of the story of the politics of the later 19th century but uh, they're not really approached. But we do get a little bit about the socialists in the United States here, which is, which is nice. And, you know, she does show how there's different cultures among the socialists in different countries, how the, how the um, you know, in some countries there's much more an argument over revolution and, and reform. Can we reform the state? Do we need to take it over? You know, what comes after us seizing power, either through electoral politics or through some other means? That whole debate... Um, or uh, 
She also talks about the, the, the lack of radicals among the German labor movement of the time, which also, I think, leads into them being weak during World War One, not really being in a position to challenge the war uh, where it was being fought and in the, in the center of Europe. Of course, that's going to change by the end of the war or you do have a revolution in Germany in, in, in 1919. But before the war, they seem to be more weak. And that's partially due to a growing industrial economy and, and a growth of jobs and a generally raising of conditions of, of workers there. So a lot of emphasis on this regional difference. And what is the thesis here that she's getting at? Well, I think what she's really getting at is you have this international movement. That their, their song is the international. Their philosophy is based on this Marxist line, workers of the world unite, right? And that's the ideal, but in reality, there's so many economic and political differences in these different countries. In some places, you have a broader franchise, like in England, so you can kind of have a labor party being formed there. In other places, you don't have that, so you have to have more revolutionary socialism. Uh, of course, you got the U.S. case, which is really complex, but you have a, a broad franchise there, so that may also... Uh, you know, that, that may have been part of the reason why the U.S. didn't really develop a labor party itself because it already had, the working class had already been incorporated into the major parties at the time uh, through issues that weren't really class-related. Uh, and that's what it comes down to here is, is the, the, the weakness, I guess, of class politics. I think that's where her thesis sort of rests, uh, the weakness of class politics versus uh, national identity. So I want to I want to look a little closer at a little bit of what she says about the American case. Um, I don't know if I fully agree. I think there's more going on here about why you don't have a labor party. I mean, obviously in in England you do get this, uh, whatever faults the labor party has today, uh, it did establish a a, a labor party, um, a party based on working class interests. The U.S. never got that. Um, but that's not unique. A lot of countries don't have that. Taiwan, for instance, doesn't have a working class party either. Um, here's what she writes on this. American socialism, like Russian, since it had no representatives in Congress and no role in government, even at the municipal level, was protected from the temp temptations of collaboration. Debs by now had completely espoused the doctrine of class war to the end. Workers must be revolutionaries, not compromisers with the existing order. Their object was not merely to raise wages, but to abolish the wage system. End quote. And of course, the other side of that is in Gompers, who's totally willing to work with party politics to achieve uh, better conditions for workers, uh, not interested in forming a, a separate labor party. Um, and Debs, of course, runs for president a few times. So I don't know what to make of that. He, he's cl clearly willing to work within the political structure. So I don't know if he's a you know, completely abandoning politics. But I, I think the bigger question, which I, I want answered, and, and and other people have sort of answered this and looked into this, is what is it about the American working class and its ideology and its approach that makes it not particularly interested in in engaging in class politics? Uh, you know, they, it's not it's not what they vote for, right? How often do Americans, even today, vote explicitly on class interests? They vote for all sorts of other reasons, whether it's cultural or, you know, historical or, you know, they just don't like the red and orange man, whatever it is. It's it's um, it's not primarily class. Right. Um, 
the so-called left-wing party in the United States doesn't really do much for the working class and hasn't for, for a very long time. Maybe it's historical loyalties, right? Like white black voters voted Republican for so many, so, for so many years. Um, so, I don't know, I think there's more to the story here. But nevertheless, I think her introduction here to these different parties and their different approaches is, is pretty good. And she really, I think, convincingly shows that the national question took precedent over the class one. And that may have made the socialists, weaken the socialists uh, in their, weaken them to the degree they wouldn't be able to be mobilized as an effective political force when the war broke out. So anyways, that's The Proud Tower, uh, the eight chapters of The Proud Tower. I think it's, a, and it's an interesting book. I, I think it's worth checking out. It, you can read this just for a few essays, though. If you don't want to read the whole thing, I think you can maybe read an essay, put the book down, come back months later, a year later, read another essay. It's not going to matter, right? Because it, they are vignettes and they do more or less standalone. There's not, she's not trying to build a big picture here. Uh, there are some themes that I think are key. One is changing class dynamics. That's something you see again and again. Uh, changing geopolitical uh, identities is, is another one, especially in the chapter on America, where you have this rise of a new empire and uh, an empire that's got ideological blinkers about its own imperial nature. Uh, you have issues of culture, quite a lot about culture, whether it's working class culture or even more prominently, I guess in chapter one, ruling class culture. Uh, and then national cultures, as we see in the chapter on Germany, which focuses mostly on its its musical culture and the, the works of Richard Strauss. And, you know, that's there. And she hints at other artistic cultures, you know, France with painting and and, and so on and so forth. So I think that's another uh, interesting theme. I, I will say, by and large, she she does keep her sights set on 1914 in that she tries to, at the end of each chapter, get herself to thinking about what the significance of this is for where Europe would go in the next in the in the four years after 1914. And that's, it's hard not to think in those terms. I, you know, I didn't approach this book wanting to do this, but I found I couldn't avoid it because that was really where Tuckman kept shifting our eyes at the end of a chapter. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, there's a lot of things missing, and she admits it. She says, this, this, you know, there's a lot of good chapters I could have written, and I didn't. And, you know, it's not the kind of book where you can really blame her for an oversight because she's not looking at most things, and she's not making the attempt to be comprehensive. I think the title is a little bit unfortunate uh, in that way. Both in its its folk, you know, the Proud Tower, the name, the title, really hinting at World War One, and then the fact that she's like a portrait of a world, you know, portrait of the world, which she doesn't give us. She doesn't give us the portrait of the world at all. She gives us snapshots of Western Europe mostly, uh, Western Europe and North America. So I guess that's it. I guess that's all I'm going to say about Barbara Tuckman. I think this has turned out to be a pretty short series. I don't think too many of my episodes went too long this time. And I think that might tell you my overall, uh, not indifference to Tuckman, but I, I, don't, I don't feel as excited about her as I, as I did some other works in this series. Um, and if you've been listening along, you know the reason why I, I chose this book. I, I kind of got forced into it. Um, 
but that's it for now. So what's coming up next? Um, I'm not quite sure. Uh, definitely the next series will be base will be done when I'm back in Taiwan. Uh, and then I'll have all my Library of American books to draw from. There's a lot I haven't looked at yet. I would like to do some, maybe some of the science fiction works they published. I would like to go back and examine some other black writers uh, like Frederick Douglass. I'd like to do the slave narratives that they published. I, I do have all the volumes on the Civil War. And I think sometimes I'd like to do that. Um, what else might be up? Uh, you know, I think taking on a little more Henry James uh, might be might be interesting. I have a bunch of Henry James. And then the other big one, which I have to get to at some point, and when I do it, it's going to be a massive series. That will probably take a year or so. I don't know about a year, maybe eight, eight nine months, but it will take a long time. And that will be the Mark Twain collection, which I think is eight volumes or so and I have all of them so those are different ways I will be going but if you kind of combine all what I've just said that's that's kind of where I'll be for the next year or so after I get settled back in in Taiwan so I'm looking forward to that looking forward to getting back into my comfort zone and getting uh, back to my Yeti so I'll have a better sound quality at that point too so uh, but in the meantime I'll continue to plug my way through the HP Lovecraft book club which uh, I should be able to finish up in I want to say maybe another 25 episodes or so so the end of the road for the hp lovecraft book club is in sight too um i'm currently working on the fourth volume of the selected letters i have to do his final re re revisions from the last seven eight years of his life uh, i want to look at the robert e howard letters so that's that's all i have yet to do for that series and that's so that'll be coming up too um but that's it. If you have any suggestions about what I, what I might want to do in the future, uh, if if I feel like doing another uh, uh, parallel series, uh, do you have anyone in mind? Is there any American writer that, that might be worthy of a more in-depth look? Let me know what you think. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening, and uh, I'll see you next time, whenever that will be. Hold till the sun 